Hey, it's John, and we'll get to the show in just a second. But first, our sponsor this month is the Organic Grower School, and I'm actually on the phone again with Gwen and Jay Casebeer of Black Trumpet Farms. They're alumni of the Organic Grower School, and we've been talking about the Farm Beginnings class. So, Gwen, what was this school actually like? Can you tell me something about the experience? Uh, yeah, so for me it was like turning the abstract concept of, oh, we're going to start a farm and into more concrete, like here's the steps you take to get here, like here's how you learn to make enterprise budgets and learn your markets and like what are the rules for selling and how do you how do you uh, go from saying I want to be a farmer to actually becoming one. Um, so there's a lot of learning, uh, just, just basics like um, how do you apply to farmer's markets and how do you, you know, work with your how do you make proje- financial projections? And uh, but you're doing that alongside other people who are really wanting to to learn with you and you know it's a little community. Yeah, it was a supportive learning environment. Once again, that was Gwen Casebeer of Black Trumpet Farms telling us about her experience. Are you looking to launch and expand your farming business? The Organic Grower School Farm Beginnings year-long farmer training program is now accepting applications. The Farm Beginnings class is a part-time 12-month training program that uses holistic management to help beginning farmers clarify their goals and strengths, establish a strong enterprise plan, and build a profitable operation. The course uses a mix of classroom sessions taught by regional farmers, on-farm tours, mentorship, and an extensive farmer network. Classes begin in October at Creekside Farm and Education Center in Arden, North Carolina. Thanks. Here's the show. From 103.7 WPVMLP in Asheville, you've found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. We lost a giant since the last time we spoke. David Berman was probably one of my favorite songwriters. I first found him in a book that my brother gave me of his poetry called Actual Air. And then I found him through a couple of his Silver Jews albums. I got to meet him once and... I actually got to tell him about how one of the first songs I ever learned to play on guitar was one of his. And he kind of gave me this look and lit up and said, like, man, I've been waiting for somebody to tell me that my whole life kind of thing. It was a really nice moment. And I'm going to miss him a lot because I think he wrote a lot of really good songs. They were really dark, but they were full of a lot of hope. And he was one of the few people that could show you that he'd stared into the abyss and than just crack a joke about it, you know? So I don't want to deal with all of his dark material. I want to play some of the more upbeat stuff, but, you know, I think we just need to remember him. So all the music today is going to be all David Berman, and here he is with the Silver Juice. What is not but could be if What could appear in the morning mist with all associated risk what is not but could be what was not but could have been was my obsession way back when now i just Remember this What is not but could be if What is not but could be if 
We could be crossing this abridged abyss into beginning. And failure's got you in its grasp, and you're reaching for your very last. It's just beginning. One has lived life carelessly. If he or she has failed to see that the truth is not alive or dead, the truth is struggling to be said. So how do we get out of this? Family shadows, all of this. Through what is not, but could be, if with all associated risk. What is not, but could be, if we could be crossing this abridged abyss into beginning. Failure's got you in its grasp, and you're reaching for your very last. It's just beginning.
Heritage is often thought of as something passed down by blood. But for most of us in America, it is also something that we have come into through marriage, either of our own or through a family member. The chosen family, the people that come into our lives later, often bring a history of their own. Catherine recently found herself tracking down her adopted heritage when she traveled to Winston-Salem to look into her stepmother's Moravian culture at one of the country's last and largest handmade cookie bakeries. When my new stepmother said, I'm Moravian, I thought she said, I'm a Mormon. So I proceeded to roll with that fact for years. After all, I was 10 years old, a kid, and I had absolutely no interest in my dad's new wife's background, only her foreground, the way she treated my dad, the way she treated my sister, and most importantly, the way she treated me. She was, after all, my first and only stepmother, and I didn't have much to go on about what it was like to live in the world of stepmothers, except that they were probably evil. Look at the Disney cartoons. My stepmother Diane turned out to be neither evil nor Mormon. When she said Moravian again, I didn't quite understand, because I had been raised in a Southern Baptist town. My dad was a former Christian turned Buddhist, So he and my stepmom somehow met in the middle. They became Unitarians and eventually attended the Unitarian Universalist Church down the street from their home. What Diane practiced mostly was the Moravian tradition of food. Over the last 25 years of their marriage, my dad and stepmom have lived in the Yadkin River Valley outside Winston-Salem, North Carolina, in the heartland of some of the original Moravian settlements. One of the first times I heard the word Moravian, it was uttered with the words sugar and cake. Whenever I visited them on a summer or holiday break or drove in to spend the weekend away from college, Diane would serve me pieces of her homemade sugar cake, its thumb-pressed pockets of dough filled with little icing pools of butter, sugar, and cinnamon. Taste helps me burn things into memory. After that, I never forgot that Diane came from Moravian traditions. And until that point... I didn't know that religion could be so effortlessly mixed with food. But first, a quick history lesson. The Moravian Church originated more than 500 years ago in the ancient land of Bohemia and Moravia. It's known today as the Czech Republic. During the 18th century, Moravians split from the Roman Catholic Church and formed their own communities in Europe to preserve their culture and beliefs. See, they didn't hold the belief that congregations must be formed to spread their church and belief systems like other Protestant denominations. As followers of John Huss, a Bohemian heretic who was burned at the stake in 1415, they were scarred by extreme persecution. The Moravian story is similar to that of the early Christian church. Bibles were confiscated and burned, villages were destroyed, leaders were executed, and followers were forced to flee. Still, a remnant survived. And today, they are small in numbers, but they still exist. They came over from Europe to America. The settlement of Bethabara in what is today Winston-Salem, North Carolina, was founded on November 17, 1753, when 15 Moravian men arrived after walking all the way from Pennsylvania. Bethabara was the beginning of a series of Moravian settlements on the 100,000-acre tract the Moravians had purchased on the Carolina frontier. These 15 men settled into an abandoned cabin at the end of their six-week journey down the Great Wagon Road. Following a simple meal, the men prepared what's called a love feast, a traditional Moravian ceremony sharing of bread and cake and coffee, wine, or tea. The Moravian town of Salem, North Carolina, was established in 1766. 
Salem then merged with Winston in 1913, creating the city of Winston-Salem, which is the only hyphenated name recognized by the U.S. Post Office. And today, in the Piedmont of North Carolina, where my father and stepmother live along the Yadkin River, there is a Moravian culinary trail. If you follow it, you'll discover dishes you've perhaps already tasted without having a clue as to their persecuted background. Being as food curious as I am, I decided to explore this culinary trail, but I didn't get very far. You see, I had planned to visit a handful of restaurants, interview a bunch of chefs, explore and taste and cook all the Moravian foods I could find, but I got distracted by a cookie. With more than a million pounds baked here each year, Winston-Salem has been named the epicenter of the Moravian cookie production. This simple cookie is a worldwide wonder for its ability to adopt different flavors and be rolled out incredibly thin. Some bakers even call it the world's thinnest cookie. And there's one place in the Piedmont that has been making these cookies by hand for more than a century. So how long have you been in this location? Pardon? How long have you been in this location? Since about 1970. 1970. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's just take a little hike and then we'll come forward. That's Travis Haynes. He and his wife, Ava, own Mrs. Haynes' Moravian cookies. Ava is the matriarch in a long line of women who have been making the same Moravian cookies in Clemens, North Carolina, a suburb of Winston-Salem, for over 100 years. Ava and Travis started their cookie empire in the 1970s, and today, their daughter Mona and son-in-law Mike work alongside them. Located on Friedberg Church Road, Mrs. Haynes' Moravian Cookies isn't much to look at from the outside. It's a big gray warehouse with one small entrance and a window. When I pull into the parking lot, I see a couple of young women tucked around the corner of the building, checking their phones in the cool shadows of the loading bay, their hairnets drooping. It's July, and already a swampy heat is weighing down on my shoulders as I gather my camera pack and notebook and head inside. A few weeks ago, I arranged to meet with Travis, Ava, and the Haynes family. They invited me to tour their factory. I'm here because I'm fascinated by this family-owned cookie business for several reasons, one of them being a personal way to find another common thread between my own family and my stepmom. And I'm full of questions. How have they stayed in business over the last four decades? And why exactly did Oprah name Mrs. Haynes cookies among her favorite delicacies? How do they possibly produce more than 110,000 pounds of cookies each year by hand in a world that is now fully automated? And furthermore, why would they want to keep doing it that way? I needed to know the big deal about something so small. We're primarily in the mail order business. About Probably about 70% of our business is mail order. Wow. We do a terrific retail business here because we're the only people that still make cookies by hand. You're the only... Only place. All other cookies, if you get a Moravian cookie, if it's not Miss Haynes' name on it, it's not a... It's, it's a, not made by hand? That's correct. Wow. Years ago, there used to be hundreds of individuals who made what they said was a Moravian cookie. Ginger was, is the most popular flavor, and that's uh, it's just one of the things that the Moravians brought with them from Europe. And... Uh, but uh, hundreds of ladies made it and didn't make any difference whether Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, or even whatever. <laughs> they made them and they stored them in cans like this, and it was just a Christmas treat. We have about 8,000 of those cans that we fill up now by 8, hand. 8,000? Uh, during the year, we, we never stop baking. <laughs> uh, 
but this is it's put in the shipping cart like this and on our we 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 baked year round we never stop and uh but probably 70 percent of our annual production is shipped out in about an eight week period at the end of the year so we're like kind of like a farmer we takes a long time to put out the crop and you got to tend to it and they got a short time to harvest wow but it's a very enjoyable business now my wife is about the seventh generation of cookie makers in her family. Mm. We live at the old home place, which is next door. And it's next door? Yes. I don't. The home place I, Travis speaks of was built in 1840 by Ava's great-great-grandfather, Jonathan Fischel. Her grandfather was born in that house. Her father was born in that house. She was born in that house. Ava and Travis live in the house now after taking down part of the log home and restoring it. The Moravian cookie is just one of the cultural pieces these people brought with them from Germany and the Czech Republic. And Travis reminds me of the culinary trail I so quickly forgot. Sugar cake, chicken pies, cookies, bread. These, along with the Moravian star-shaped lamps lighting up those Piedmont, North Carolina porches every December night, are physical reminders of a people who are small in numbers, but mighty in innovation. Their simple recipes remind me a lot of my own poor Appalachian childhood, where dollars were creatively stretched to make each meal count as two. But let's step over right inside here. There's, um, there's not anything taking place in here. You come back here in uh, September, a whole lot of action going here. As I told you, we ship most of our product in the, in the last eight weeks of the year. Okay. And uh, uh, whenever we ship cookies every day, Maybe 10 or 15 packages, maybe 100 this time of year, something like that. But the biggest bulk of it goes out in the latter part of the year. On our heavy shipping days, United Parcel will bring a trailer out here and they'll park it. And we get loaded with packages and we have them logged. We, we send out our catalog in September and we immediately start getting Christmas orders. We log those but, and get them ready in, um, for certain shipping dates. But on the heavy shipping dates, there's a you know, parts of the trailer out here, and actually for about a two and a half, three week period, there'll be one out here. When they get one full, they take it and drop another. <laughs> now we couldn't do that business all year long because when you're making things by hand, mm -hmm. your production is very limited. But go ahead. Yeah. So your so your production's limited. You have to you have to time it just right, especially because everything's rolled out by hand. There's no preservatives or anything, so you have to time everything for the holiday season just right? We'll, we'll tell you all about that. Oh, okay. I'm going to show you one thing here, and then we're going to go in here to Grandma's Kitchen, oh, which great. is right next door. Travis leads me down a long hallway lit by fluorescent lights. On one side is a dark wood panel wall, and on the other side is a glass window enclosed room. They call it the packing room. It's currently empty. The staff are elsewhere on their shift, and Travis suggests we wait until some of the staff come back so I can get a good look at the rolling and packing process. All I know is it sounds intense. I'm starting to become aware of how the smell of cookie dough fills every inch of this place. It relaxes me, makes me feel like a kid again. And may I ask how old you are? Pardon? May I ask how old you are? How old do you think I am? You want to embarrass me? Um, 70? How about 87? 87. 87. And my wife, she she catches up with me. Miss Haynes, she catches up with me in November. My my birthday's in March. We'll put, 
she's 86 now, but she's around here somewhere now. And what time do you use? And you work? Do you work here every day? No, you don't have to. <laughs> no, okay. but I, I come down here most every day and just uh, odd jobs. I can do that. I tell them I'm an unpaid employee now. <laughs> but uh, uh, but our bit, our, I guess it's probably been almost 20 years since since we we, we were in, totally in control. We turned it over to our, our oldest daughter Mona uh, and our oldest son, and they run it for that period of time. Now, they're getting ready to retire. <laughs> wow. John, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? Doing fine. <laughs> uh, well, let's go in here and I'll tell you a little bit about Grandma's kitchen. <laughs> we shuffle a few steps down the hall and stop, shuffle and stop, and meander along for nearly half an hour talking about the past. When Ava's mother and her grandmother baked cookies, they originally made them on a wood stove. Ava herself learned to bake on a wood stove top. Now, Travis shows me a full-size antique stove that belonged to their family, its baking accessories still gathered across the top, as if someone left in the middle of using it. I pick up a baking sheet that's around 70 or 80 years old, running my fingers across the darkened impressions. A lot of cookies have been on this. Along the dark wood panel wall are framed newspaper clippings and article cutouts, magazine covers, and old brass plate awards. The Haynes family would say they've been blessed with so many free things that they couldn't afford to buy, including publicity. They've been in every regional magazine, they've been on the Food Network, they've appeared on public television, and in 2010 were named one of Oprah's favorite things. But I get the sense their profit margins from a cookie company are very, very tight. The husband and wife team technically started in the 1960s, making cookies in their home, then out of their basement. Before Ava and Travis went full-time into the baking business, Travis still worked in the sweet life as a district sales manager representing candy and beechnut chewing gum. He basically introduced Lifesavers Candy to Western North Carolina. As he says, he was working for small things and small profits. And while he enjoyed it, the entrepreneurial spirit and baking side of things kept beckoning him and Ava. The last year he worked in chewing gum and candy was 1974, and he says it's like he's been on vacation ever since. It was probably the most profitable time we ever had because your expenses were built into the home. But the bad thing about it, everything in your house smelled like cookies. You didn't have to tell people who you were when you went to a bank or somewhere. They would say, here comes a cookie man, because you got the aroma, here comes a cookie woman. But... <laughs> But we built our first building here in about 1970, somewhere, 70, 71. We've had seven expansions. We've just, as we needed more, we've, one thing we have tried to do, we tried not to take on more than we could handle. When you're making cookies by hand, you're limited to production. It's very time consuming. And uh, so we just moved gradually. As we needed more space, we'd add another, uh, another addition. But, uh, uh, we haven't done any great planning, but we have really been blessed with a lot of free advertising just from our customers. We have now probably around, I don't know, 65,000 people on our mailing list. Everybody on there has had our cookies. We don't buy, never bought a name. In, in the mail order business, they tell me that four, three to four percent is considered good business. Yeah. Ours, I don't know what it is, before 2008, 
it was probably around 40%. <laughs> it's unheard of, but wow. it's because everybody, you, you, there were previous customers, and it spreading the word, and, and really and truly, that's, it's been a blessing. I'm curious to how Mrs. Haynes' Moravian Cookies sustains their growth year over year, because it's tough when you're doing something by hand, and you can't just automate or scale up production when you feel like it. You can't scale down at the touch of a button because you're hiring real people to work and to produce. You're dealing with people's lives and livelihoods. That can be challenging when you're growing to meet demand and you have to time it just right for seasonal hiring. You've certainly got the full picture. It can really be challenging because uh, we never stop. Mm -hmm. Now, from 1960 till now, we've only had one bad year. What we normally do is make all the cookies we can and sell all we make. And at the end of Christmas time, we may have a day or two of production on hand. 2008, we had two months supply of cookies. Now, this wouldn't have been a problem if we wanted to sell those cookies because they were all ginger. Ginger is the most popular, has practically an unlimited shelf life. There is no dairy product. There is no eggs. It's all plain flour, it's brown sugar, and it's black molasses, it's four pure spices, and so it's, there's nothing to go away, so you, you can keep it as long as you want to, as long as you keep it in a tight container. Right. Our concern was not the cookies. We could have cut down and took off a month or two and had a good year, but we were concerned with these people we've got out here. We've had several people to retire after 30 years. Now, it used to be up until the past, we've had several retire in the last five or six years. But if you go in there now, probably if you took and added, even with the young ones we've got in there, if you added the time of service together, it would probably be between 10 and 15 years. And uh, uh, the only thing we got here better than the cookies is those people in there making it. We've had a wonderful people. Mrs. Haynes Cookies may be one of the few large food brand products still fully made, let alone made by hand, in this country. And that's why they're so unusual. They've been able to survive thanks to their many loyal customers and by their story spreading from person to person. Years ago, U.S. News and World Report selected 12 food items they recommended for Christmas through mail order. One, of course, was Mrs. Haynes. Not only did they recommend it, they put a picture and they put a price. And Travis says they received 3,000 new mail order customers. It was the first year since 1960 that they had made a bigger profit. Since then, they've grown this little space from about 2,400 square feet into 36,000 square feet. They've transformed the land from a small dairy farm to a building that just kept rippling out. Where I'm standing now, in this hallway, used to be a pond. Late 2008 to 2009 was their only bad year. With a couple thousand cookies left over in storage, they had to unload their product and fast. So they gave it to charity. Northwest Food Bank, Pastor's Pantry, Sunnyside Ministry, wherever they could give. Then they met with their workers and explained to them that they would have to cut back their work week. They refused to shut down. Instead, they worked four days a week for nine months keeping everyone on payroll and insurance, they worked back up from a four-day work week to five days. And in 2009, Oprah's friend Quincy Jones sent her a pack of Mrs. Haynes cookies as a holiday gift. He sends them every year, around two or 300 packs to celebrity friends and family. When Oprah decided to include them in her favorite things for 2010, 
Mrs. Haynes fully recovered thanks to the national spotlight. It brought in a ton of walk-in traffic. And Travis says that although mail order will never be what it was prior to 2008 due to the cost of shipping, they've still never had a layoff and never had to shut down. The Mrs. Haynes team bakes six flavors, sugar, black walnut, chocolate, butterscotch, traditional Moravian ginger, and lemon, which is Mr. Haynes's favorite. Practicality and pragmatism, also trademarks of the Moravian culture, point to the use of the then exotic spices and flavorings. Ginger, clove, and molasses were all hearty and available through the trading partners that came into our area. These ingredients still tasted good after a long journey or being stored a long time. Because most traditional recipes made such large batches of dough, not all the cookies were baked at once, so storing the dough for days or weeks during the winter months was commonplace. Bakers knew that as the dough rested, the flavors intensified. Everything you see in here is ginger cookies. Wow. Uh, now, we make six flavors. Ginger, most popular. That's a traditional Christmas flavor. Sugar crisp, a sugar cookie is a vanilla flavor, and it's our second seller. Then it's lemon, then it's a, a, a walnut, then it's a chocolate and, and butterscotch. Butterscotch. Yeah, we'll get you. We'll get you some samples of that along the way. But I've never, I've never heard of or tasted a butterscotch Moravian cookies. So well, that's a new I, one. If you didn't get it, if you didn't get one of Miss Haynes, you'd some way you'd ever get mm-hmm. it. But we've limited to that. We can. The difference. I told you we got no secrets. But the sugar cookie is a secret recipe. It is a family recipe. It's different from any recipe I've ever seen. It's a vanilla flavor. We can leave out the vanilla. We can make you a lemon. We can make you a, uh, leave out the uh, vanilla. We can make you a chocolate. Or we can put in butterscotch and we got a butter. We can make you a peanut if you wanted to. Or we can make you a pineapple or orange or anything. We've limited it to six flavors because when you're making all you can and selling all you make, there's no need to add another item because that means another inventory that you got to look after. So we just sort of limited to that. The last flavor, we, the newest flavor we've got, it's probably about 20 years old, more than 25. It's a black walnut. And it does have walnuts in it, fresh walnuts. Wow. The shelf lives of these cookies is phenomenal. They can last for months, and the flavor may fade only a little. They freeze easily. While we're talking, a woman walks into the packing room, sits down, and promptly starts neatly assembling and wrapping stacks of cookies and wax paper and arranging them in tins. This is Debbie. She's 58 years old and has the most perfect hands I've ever seen. I snap a few photos of her wrapping cookies while she tells me that she started working with the Haynes family when her daughter started middle school. She used to be a stay-at-home mom. Now she's been rolling and packing cookies in the warehouse for the last 19 years. In the factory, they have two cookie dough mixers. One will mix up to 100 pounds of dough. The other one mixes 700 pounds. So they can store up to 7,000 pounds of dough thanks to refrigeration, and you can keep it for as long as you like, even in the freezer. For their production, they usually make up to 4,000 pounds of cookies at a time, which takes approximately four to five hours. Then there's two hours of cleanup time and steam cleaning. As I move from packing room back to the hallway, I have to don a hairnet before we step into what I would call the rolling room. The sounds shift and so does the atmosphere. This is essentially the heart of the bakery operations and where Mrs. Haynes' Moravian cookies thrives. 
From deserted dark hallway, I enter a buzzing space with tons of plywood tables set up across a wide room. The plywood tables are angled up like architects' desks, and the employees are bent over slightly, using their full bodies to run rolling pins back and forth, back and forth, thinning out the dough, cutting out cookies, and gently placing them on sheets. In the back of the rolling room, ovens are built into the walls. Countless baker trays and rolling carts stand at the ready, holding wafer-thin raw cookie cutouts. All of the employees are women, and all of them are wearing headphones. I meet one of them, and her name is Betty Brown. And how long have you been working? 32 years. 32, 32 years? Yep. Do you, are you, do you permanently smell like cookies now? As I don't the smell case. it when I go home, but everybody else can smell it. <laughs> <laughs> we do ginger. I call it the essence of ginger. <laughs> and how long, um, and have you just been in rolling mm-hmm. for, for, mm-hmm. Thir- for 32 years? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Wow. Rolling cookies for 32 years. Mm-hmm. Is it, do you ever, um, is it, is it ever something where you, where you think, you know, maybe I want to do something else or is it some, or do you ever, or is it just really peaceful or how do you find the job? I think so. I like doing it. We can listen to books. <laughs> so while we're working, we can listen to books. And it's, I, now we're on soft dough now. I love soft dough. Now the ginger is harder and I get tired right at the end of the day, but I like, I like baking cookies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I bake when I go home. So I bake a lot at home. So. Now, some people say that um, Moravian cookies are, they're known as the uh, thinnest cookies in the world. And, uh, and the trick is really in rolling out the dough. Is that, is that correct? Or do you well, think- to get them that thin, probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. You can get the ginger a whole lot thinner than you can the sugar. Okay. Is there a reason for getting it thinner um, or to well, bury the cookies? Well, if you get cook- this too thin, then mm-hmm. they'll start having bubbles on them. Okay. So you can have the bubbles. You can get the ginger thinner without bubbles. And with the ginger, after you roll it a while, you can slide it, hold your rolling pin, and push it. But you can't do that with this. So, okay. <laughs> but you can't get it too thin. So that's probably the hardest part of the job is getting the correct thinness. Because if they're too thick, they can't use them. If they're too thin, they can't use them. So. And what do your friends and family think about your job making cookies all day? I think they think it's fine. <laughs> The cookie's distinctively thin texture evolved over years of baking for several practice reasons. Certainly the thinner the cookie, the more dough there was to produce more cookies. The thinner cookies would also bake quickly so that the families could get on about their other baking and daily chores. Each employee in the rolling room has her own station, even her own signature mark on her cookie batches. They have a tiny cookie cutter to mark each pan, and then they know the bakers who made that particular cookie. When the cookies go into baking, then they may say, Mary, you need a little more flour or a little less flour. That's Mrs. Haynes' quality control system. They've been able to get and keep good people. And it's a love of the work that keeps them there. Everybody in that room is on a salary. Everybody in that room gets a bonus. Most of the people in that room can make around 30 pounds of cookies per day. And some can make 40 and some can make 50. And they're rewarded for this extra production. But every cookie they make has to be perfect. It can't have any bubbles or imperfections in it. And if it has a bubble, it can't be packed in the mail order tin because it'll crush it. As I walk around quietly observing them, it strikes me that these employees innately know the recipes as naturally as they know the smell of their own child's hair 
or the sound of their spouse's car pulling into the driveway at night. Travis tells me they know just from touch or from the aroma exactly how much flour to put into the second rolling batch because there's already flour in it. It's the experience that makes these cookies taste different from any manufactured cookie. It's actually the human touch, and that's the secret. He says if a machine could work, they would have a machine, but they've never found anything that could replace the ladies in what they do. I watch Betty and the other women roll scraps into fresh dough, and she knows exactly how much flour to put in that second batch. She rolls it out a second time, and that's how the flavor is controlled. A machine can't do that. I ask Travis what time they start each day. About, about 6.30. They come in at 6 and then get to cut on those and get things ready. Probably about 6.30. They, they start putting the first cookies in the, in the oven over here. We have three rack ovens. And you can bake two racks of cookies, which is about 20 pans of these on each rack. And it takes about 8 to 10 minutes at 325 degrees to bake. Then when the bell goes off in the oven, they, they bring it out. They'll remove those two racks and put two fresh racks in there. And uh, then some of the cookies are packed in bulk, which they repack back in the tin. Uh, they go out of here in the large tins, about or 20 pounds in a tin, or they're put in bags, packed in bags, which we sell across the counter. Two years ago, their oldest grandson, Jedediah, who grew up in the bakery, graduated from college. After doing other jobs for a couple years, he came home to work on his writing while working in the bakery again. He has since bought a home here and settled. Travis thinks the best thing about it is that not only does Jedediah have the background in the bakery business, he has the knowledge to repair refrigeration, ovens, do electrical work. He's even revamped the company's whole computer system. If he wants a part to fix this, he just goes out and gets it and brings it in and puts it together. If Travis and Ava are the past and Mona is the present, Jedediah is the future. And if he wasn't coming in to help with the business, if he hadn't volunteered to wear the mantle of the legacy, Travis says Mrs. Haynes' Moravian cookies may no longer be here. But fortunately, Jedediah is stepping up and he loves it. I guess the only other question I have is really what what do you think is the you know the future of the Moravian cookie? Well, as long as we can get to people. And now that our grandson is back here, I see a good future. After the tour, I wander with Travis up to the home place, where I briefly meet Ava and sit and talk for a few minutes with both of them. Ava is very soft spoken. Three years ago she was diagnosed with breast cancer and at her age the prognosis and treatment have made her very tired. I don't linger too long. Before I leave, Ava gifts me a copy of her cookbook, a local published favorite. I vow to try to cook some Moravian recipes when I drive back to Asheville after the weekend. It looks like I'm taking the culinary trail home with me. I think about my own family legacy and how sometimes we come around to our past and bring in new threads with new discoveries. A Moravian love feast is a ritual of sharing food, sharing where we came from and what we have, no matter how little. The Moravian church is also known as Unitas Fratrum, a Latin term meaning unity of brethren. They have a simple motto, one I hope to remember as I return home, where my father and Diane will be waiting for me, 
probably with some snack on the table, some refreshing drink in a glass. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. That was Catherine reading her story, The Mechanics of Becoming Sweet. You can find that on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by the Marketplace Restaurant, celebrating 40 years as Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. Founded in 1979, the Marketplace Restaurant has always had the mission of bringing Asheville the best the region has to offer from our own backyard, farmed by our neighbors. Baby, won't you take this magnet? Maybe put my picture back on the fridge I must have been crazy To let you get away like you did And like a brown bird nesting in a Texaco sign I got a point of view And the kicker is that I'm getting mad time we became ducks I never seemed to see you much then the world turned time got away we fell out of touch I've been working at the airport bar it's like Christmas in a submarine wings and brandy on a winter's night I guess you wouldn't call it a scene Democratic and cool, but baby, there's no doubt. 
guidance when random rules I know that a lot of what I say has been lifted off of men's room walls Maybe I've crossed the wrong rivers and walked down all the wrong halls But nothing can change the fact that we used to share a bed And that's why it scared me so when you turned to me and said Yeah, you look like someone Yeah, you look like someone who up and left me started the radio hour, Dirty Spoon was primarily an online illustrated journal. It was, as it is today, a space for rants and rambles about the things we consume and the way we consume them. Back in 2014, John published a piece about dining alone, which is actually something we both have in common. And his story might have just stayed as a backstory on our website, but it recently got picked up to be published by Woodhall Press for their flash food anthology coming out in the spring of 2020. So we decided to bring the piece back up and give it the proper radio hour treatment. Here's John reading Only the Lonely. I like doing things alone. I like going to see movies by myself. I like seeing concerts solo and eating alone. Don't get me wrong. A booth full of friends is one of my favorite things. There is no space I adore more than sitting at a table with a dozen people or just a date. 
there's no better way to get to know a group of strangers than sitting around a dinner table with them and busting each other's balls over a home-cooked meal or over a spread of plates at some local joint. But there is something about eating alone that I absolutely love. And I never thought of that as unusual until about a year ago when I was sitting on a patio at the noodle shop in downtown Asheville. I had a table to myself, and the big nasty was playing ragtime on the street. I had a table full of small plates, silver potato, steamed pork dumplings, baozi, and some kind of soup, I'm sure. So there I am, basking in the lovely fall weather, when an old friend from college spots me as he's crossing the street. He approaches my table and gives me a big hug. Are you here by yourself? He asks, in the type of tone that people used to say, How's your mother? I heard she was ill. Or, I heard you had to put your dog down last week. Are you okay? And my response was, Well, yeah. Because to me, going out to eat by yourself is kind of a standard thing. As someone who is always around people and always out in public, a dinner by myself is a fun chance to catch up on back issues of The Economist or finally dip into that book my brother gave me for Christmas four years ago. It is a sacred time where I can enjoy my food and actually give it the attention it deserves instead of pondering a witty comeback for my date's terrible icebreakers. Take this for example. I love going to movies by myself. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a film with someone and afterwards they looked at me and said, well that sucked, and I'm over here thinking, what are you talking about? That was amazing. Then they want to go on for 20 minutes about what they didn't like, thus ruining a perfectly good film. Or the opposite, which is even worse. Is there anything worse than despising a movie and having to listen to someone go on and on about how great it was as you're leaving the theater and all you can think is, stop talking, I want these horrible scenes and that awful dialogue out of my brain as fast as they can be forgotten. But when you go alone, you have no opinions to listen to but your own. It's just you and a giant screen and the director's ideas. It is perfect. I really like to eat alone, said Andy Warhol once in an interview. Quote, I want to start a chain of restaurants for other people who are like me, called Andy Mats, the restaurant for the lonely person. You get your food, and you take your tray into a little booth and watch television. End quote. What a fantastic idea. Unfortunately, Andy wanted to make it an automat. You know, one of those places with the wall of trays under heat lamps where you stick in your quarter and pull down a plastic door and pull out a pre-cooked hamburger or cube steak, which could not be a grosser idea. But the concept of the Lonely Man's Restaurant is a great idea, I think. In countries like South Korea, it's a cultural thing that no one ever eats alone. My friend Joanna lived there for a while, and she would tell me stories about trying to go out and eat by herself. She would say, people at the table next to you would just clear a seat and invite you to sit down with them. And it was really offensive if you didn't join them. In some places, they'd just seat you with another party if you came by yourself. I've heard that there is even a common greeting of, have you eaten yet? In place of the ubiquitous American, how are you? I'm torn on the Korean ethic here. Whereas I would love the ability to walk into any restaurant or bar by myself and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I will be introduced to someone and have a conversation that otherwise would never have taken place, I think it might drive me a little nuts. Sometimes there is nothing better than sidling up to a bar, busting out your book, and packing away a giant burger and fries while you eavesdrop on the awkward first date at the table behind you.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. Radio's on, feeling alright, cruising the strip on a Saturday night, smiling my way, and I hide all my pain, but the sign on my bumper gives me away. Honk if you're lonely tonight, if you need a friend to get through the night, toot on your horn. Flashing your price, honk if you're lonely tonight. I know a honk, it's on where we can go. A booth in the back with the lights way down low. The jukebox is playing a sad melody for heartbroken lovers just like you and me. We'll laugh and we'll flirt and we'll dance every dance. Dollars and the light of day away. 
true to you But money lights your world up You're trapped, what can you do? You got Tennessee tendencies And chemical dependencies You make the same old jokes And malapropes on cue Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Katrin Doza, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by David Berman and the Silver Jews, Ben Lovett, Goldman, Marco Beltrame, and Miles Hankins, Ensemble O and Sylvan Chaveau, Wojciech Golchuski, John Bryan, DJ Grone, and RJ Ronquillo. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. I can't believe he does all of that. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from 103.7 WPVMLP Asheville. Before we go, I have to ask, are you looking to launch or expand your farming business? The Organic Grower School Farm Beginnings year-long farmer training program is now accepting applications. The Farm Beginnings class is a part-time, 12-month training program that uses holistic management to help beginning farmers clarify their goals and strengths, establish a strong enterprise plan, and build a profitable operation. The course uses a mix of classroom sessions taught by regional farmers, on-farm tours, mentorship, and an extensive farmer network. Classes begin in October at Creekside Farm and Education Center in Arden, North Carolina.